And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Well, we survived Monday, and here it is Tuesday, and there's still snow on the ground. I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to speak to somebody about that. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here. I am the editor at Sci-Fi for Me. Among other things, I take out the trash. I clean out coffee mugs I make the coffee and on occasion I talk into a little microphone and pretend to know what I'm talking about so welcome everyone thanks for joining us the live chat is open if you are over on YouTube uh, Facebook comments are open uh, you can send an email with your feedback live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com or you can leave a comment if you are uh, listening or watching in playback. We do appreciate all of you who are here. Just want to give a shout out to Peter Semetti over at Alterna Comics because uh, he uh, he gave me a little bit of time to promote the channel over on his Open Mic Monday. And we have crossed a threshold. We are now over 1,500 subscribers here on the YouTube channel. It's something that uh, has been brewing for a while. We also have a discount negotiated over at SuperheroStuff.com. You can save 10% on your order when you use the promo code SCIFI for me 10 And that can be used in combination with a few different uh, offers. Tonight, we've got a, uh, a new Salacious Crumbs with the latest Star Wars news which we will be discussing Friday on uh, on a new Ranker Pit. Also, we will be analyzing and reacting to the first episode of The Mandalorian Season 2. That's Friday night. And also on Friday, we'll have a special episode of TARDIS Sauce. Our Doctor Who discussion will be talking about the scary episodes of Doctor Who, since it is Halloween week. So that is where we are in all of the programming notes and the maintenance and the whatnot. So now let's uh, let's do this. Let's bring in our guest. He is uh, a writer, editor, general raconteur. Mr. Brian Thomas Schmidt is with us this afternoon. Hello, sir. Hello. And and Louis. That's right, Louie. Louie is our guest, <laughs> our guest star. Welcome, Louie. So, how are you, sir? How much, how much snow did you get out there? Oh, a dusting. You yeah. know, really not much at all. Did you get a lot more over there? Uh, what did we end up getting? About what, an inch, inch and a half, something like that? Yeah, it's it uh, it stuck to really? the ground and it stayed. I was really surprised. I I figured We're... we would get a dusting because the ground wasn't cold, but. Uh... That's funny because, you know, actually we were talking before the show, Jason's living just on the other side of Kansas City from where I live. So, you know, the fact that I got so little, he got, you know, quite a bit more. You know, it's always funny how weather works. Yeah, yeah. 
just a few miles makes all the difference. Well, and and you know, wait five minutes and the whole thing changes, right? So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have uh, we have corresponded back and forth, and and uh, I will I will acknowledge publicly here that uh, you kind of got lost in the in the queue with your first book in the John Simon series. And... Oh, you bastard! <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I owe you a, at least one review, but you've got three books in this series now. And it is set in Kansas City in the future, and it is. Uh, let's start there with uh, with some. It's a police procedural, but it also involves robots. It's the it's the near future procedural. It's the first book starts in 2029, and it's about a tough, kind of a diehard esque John McClane type cop. He's old school. He's a bit of a technophobe, and when his partner gets kidnapped. And he, is, he's, he has to find her. He's forced to work with the only witness who's an android, a humanoid android, a security guard. And so he teams up with this, teams up with this android who has chosen the name Lucas George as his <laughs> moniker. And uh, they look for his partner. Uh, and basically, it's, it's got you know, the future tech, but it's got the, you know, kind of the Kansas City contemporary setting, although with a few updates, like, you know, flying cars and a few adjustments here and there. Right. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun. There's there's a lot of humor in it. People say it reminds them of, of the old 80s buddy cop movies. It's very much got a lot of banter, like Lethal Weapon or 48 Hours or those kind of things. Um, and uh, in fact, it quotes both those movies. Uh, the robot or android Lucas uh, decides to learn how to talk like a cop because of the precocious 14-year-old daughter of, the, of, of John Simon recommends it. He watches cop movies. So he starts <laughs> quoting these cop movies. The problem is he doesn't always know the right context for the quotes. I got gotcha. you. So it can, be, it can be a lot of fun. And yeah, it's the first, the first book is called Simon Says. Uh, and then we followed that up with um, the Sideman and Common Source, uh, and I'm working on Milk Run right now. Now, given how close you are to Kansas City, uh, it, that when I first when I saw Kansas City Police Department, uh, the first thing that I thought of was this movie called Mad Money. It's Diane Keaton and Queen Latifah and Katie Holmes, and it's set in Kansas City, and they decide to rob the Federal Reserve by stealing the money they have earmarked for destruction. I have never seen that. I'll have to check that out. Well, uh, it's it's a little bit... It's it's okay, but it's a little bit of a disappointment because they say it's set in Kansas City. It was shot in Shre- in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, and it doesn't look a thing. They didn't even bother to shoot establishing shots B-roll of Kansas City. They they so you don't ever see Kansas City, and the police cars. the The most glaring error is that the police cars in this movie are black and white. <laughs> and I look at that and I'm going, "That's not Kansas City." They didn't even shoot any Kansas City. They didn't even well, research anything. Nope. Nobody will have that problem with John Simon because I spent three or four months riding along, well, three or four years riding along every couple months mm. with the KCPD. And I rode along in in their non-black and white cop, cop I mean, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> what they are is they're blue. Right. For those who don't know, Kansas City Police Department cars are dark blue. 
And I rode along with uh, officers on the beat and went to all the calls basically all night long, starting at like eight o'clock at night. We worked till like five or six in the morning in the roughest areas of Kansas City, all along the Prospect Corridor all night. And so I, I did a lot of that research. And then I spent a lot of time with some other people from the media department and others getting my details right as close as I can. Uh, you take liberties when you do stories, so there's always that. But sure. Well, um, and given that you've got it set in the future, you can you can tweak a little bit and play with it some. Well, but I did. But what's funny about that is the things I tweaked are coming true. <laughs> I, I made up I made up this thing called Prints, P R I N T Z, uh-huh. where basically you take your cell phone and you thumbprint the the perp right on the spot, and they can run them through the database. Well, they have that technology now. But when I wrote that book. Six, seven years ago, that was a pipe dream. Yeah. They actually have that technology now. They don't have it in every car yet, and you can't do it on a cell phone. You have to have special equipment. But that's all coming. That, so that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. So there's been several things. Like I also have media drones that, that come to the scene to report on things. We haven't, we don't have a lot of those yet, but those are happening now too. Yeah. So all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's funny when you write near a future, that's the chance you take. But most importantly... The, the, the two questions that, that about the world building and the future predictions and all of that, did you accurately predict the Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, and did you accurately predict that Kansas City was going to get Whataburger? I did not cover <laughs> either of those topics. In fact, I actually had a problem because I made um, the favorite diner of John Simon, uh, this famous diner downtown, now the name is escaping me, but anyway. They closed it right before the book came out. So the last oh. minute revision I had to make was to put it in a different diner. Yeah. Because I was like, well, that landmark is gone. So, yeah, that's the other hazard of doing this is that some of the things that I I put in there may not be around, especially after COVID, may not be around in 2029 or 2030 or whatever. You know? Yeah. So how have you been adjusting to COVID? Because there are a lot of people, you know, we we sit here in our office, at, at, you know, and and. I'm, as a media producer, not doing very much any differently than I did pre-pandemic. And I see every now and again, the, the, there, are certain, there are certain people with certain professions who have had an easier time of it than other people. A, a lot of us who already work in isolation. So has your routine changed very much in, in all of this? Not really. I mean, I worked at home before. I probably avoid going out more than I used to. Yeah. I don't make as many trips to the store. I try to, I try to combine my trips to the store and keep them down to one or two a month max. Sure. Because that's the one place where I get the most potential exposure. And I did have to have a COVID test. I did have a COVID scare at one point. I ended up being negative, but you know, I did have that. So for the most part, other than talking, standing further away from my neighbors when I talk to them, it hasn't changed a whole lot about what I do, uh, fortunately. Um, Of course, financially, uh, it's slowed down a number of of things. So some of the royalty checks got slowed down in various things that that I live on. So that was kind of tough. Um, But that's always tough because I'm a freelancer. So I live paycheck to paycheck. Well, and besides doing your own work, you're also doing tie-in work. You're also writing stuff that's uh, that's connected with games, or and and the the tie-in stuff. You've got one now that's a, a Predator book that's that's recently come out, right? Yes, Predator. If it bleeds, came out a couple of years ago, okay. two thousand seventeen. 
2019? I don't remember. I don't. 2018, 2018, I think. I don't know. It's, it's hard to keep track. You know, I've lost 2020. I basically lost a year of my timeline figuring out what's going on. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's been out. Yeah, I've got that. And right before that, I was in an X-Files book. So I've got those two things. And of course, we did the Monster Hunter Files, which was a tie-in to Larry Korea's universe. Now, you, you mentioned Larry. Um, there are going to be people that are are triggered just by the mention of his name but he doesn't he doesn't strike me as being somebody who's that particularly difficult to work with i'm assuming that it was a it was a fairly easy project and and no everybody everybody makes this big stink about things online but in person not so much have you have you run into any blowback on on anything i mean um, actually, like, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I have, it's nothing I really want to go into, but the reality sure. of it is that, that, that Larry's a nice guy and he's a good collaborator and I haven't had any problems. I don't always agree with his politics. You know, there's some things we actually do agree on. And there's a lot of things we don't agree on. And, um, he's very reactive. So he tends to go after people. Um, <laughs> I used to do that more because I, was feeling bullied and I swore that I would never let bullies get the best of me, but I've learned that it's really better to just ignore it and let it go away. Now. I mean, I don't have the, I don't have the built-in fan base Larry does that he can survive it. I I can't. So, well, um, you know, I, people, because of my association with him, I have been labeled, but you know, I I did a job with Jonathan Mayberry about the same time. And Jonathan Mayberry is the complete opposite of Larry politically. So I, I, I don't tend to, I don't really give a crap about your politics or who you sleep with or whatever. If you're a nice person and I can work and we can have a respectful, good collaboration, I'll work with you. That's the only issue for me. Um, You know, so I always tell people my only policy is against a-holes. I won't work with a-holes. But other than that, (laughs) that's the only thing. Has your, has Um, your, has your theological background uh, created any, uh, concerns for people and as far as on the editorial publisher level they'll look and say because you have a you have a series of books uh that started off not necessarily as christian science fiction but you you've essentially filtered moses through star wars and did did that get any the publisher was christian but i kept the christian content to a minimum because i wasn't really trying to do christian fiction as much as do something that was you know, um, some I, I was it reflected real life culture to birth, so I used some real life religions in it. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, yes, you get discriminated against if you admit that you're Christian in, in science fiction. Yes, you do. There are people who absolutely will hate you because of it. There are people who make assumptions about you because of it. Um, you know, life is short. I, you know, I, I I grew up. I've been a missionary. I've actually gone to to Africa and Brazil and all these places and done the work and it wasn't evangelism it was leadership development training helping them learn how to work get better jobs and all of those kind of things and work with each other better okay so it was that kind of universal thing and and you know i've actually gone into the foothills and worked on this stuff my track record speaks for itself when i get accused of some of this stuff you know i've lived it i've lived my convictions and my convictions are that i don't discriminate and i and i really care about everybody so you know, when people go off that, it's it's frustrating because people don't know who you are and they don't know that background. But 
you kind of have to let it roll off your back because, you know, when I look at the success that my students in Ghana are having now, that's my trophy. Yeah. You know, I helped them get where they are and all of them tell me that all the time. I hear from them on Facebook or various places and, oh, we're so glad what you did for us. And, and I'm grateful for that, that I was able to make a contribution. So I guess that's kind of how I put it in perspective. Sure. Well, and, and on the training front, on the, on the leadership training and, and editing and writing, you have a series over at Ink It, the Writer's Boot Camp, where you're teaching people how to write. And it lists you here as the editor of The Martian. We get into that here in just a second. But if I, if I come in here into this boot camp training, what am I going to learn? The boot camp is basically 10 or 11 videos that are 10 minutes in length that teach you various aspects of craft. And it's basically a shortened version of my book, How to Write a Novel, The Fundamentals of Fiction, which is published by Inkit, which is a, a very detailed craft book. And they wanted short videos that kind of gave people a teaser and yet also provided them with some teaching material. So I... I basically condensed the content that I later expand in the book and created these videos. And we cover everything from, you know, three act structure and um, character, how to build characters, uh, plotting, um, and even a little bit on editing and revision. So, you know, all kinds of things are covered. You're going to just get a taste, but you're going to get them in 10 minute bursts. Yeah. So it's kind of nice, you know, you can do it on a break at work or whatever. And then, you know, hopefully there's a few exercises and each one has an exercise that can stimulate you to think about your project or help you get working. And, um, and then, you know, hopefully if you want more, you can get how to, how to write a novel is free as a download if you sign up for the boot camp. If you don't sign up for the boot camp, just go look for it on, Ink, on Inkit's uh, um, Smashwords page. Uh, it's free there. Yeah. Or... You can go find uh, it on my um, website, brianthomasschmidt.net, and look at some of the uh, write tips. And I usually post the link there. There's write tips on three-act structure. That one has the link to the book. Um, and there's several others that are based on how to write a novel where I put the link to the book. You can download the book. So you can literally get it for free. It's, it's, it's meant to uh, be kind of a free offering. Now, when you go through uh, training with students and, and, and they're learning how to do all of this, uh, the idea here of speculative fiction, you talk about you know, the, the, the books set in Kansas City that are just a little bit further in the future. Are we at a point, because I've, I've looked at, you know, you look at stuff like Clark and Heinlein and Bradbury and all of these different things that predicted future events. Now, we've, now we're essentially living in the time periods that were covered then. Technology's caught up. All of the gadgets and everything is, you know, we're, we're living in a science fiction society almost. How, how much of a challenge is it to project forward from here in terms of where society is going, where technology is going, because things keep moving so quickly in real life. Where do you, where do you draw inspiration for finding stories that take place 15, 20, 30, 100 years from now? Well, it's easier to write something 100 years from now than it is to write something 10 years from now. Sure. In fact, when I first wrote Simon Says, it took two or three years to get it published, and I had to actually change the dates of it because 
it was getting a little too close to now. I needed to keep it a little more distant because I, I wanted to keep that safe distance. But there are things that you can, there's things you can predict if you follow trends in technology. We know for a fact that we're going to have self-driving cars sometime in the next decade be a lot more widely used than they are now. That's just where we're going. Um, there's regulatory hurdles. There's various things. But that day is coming. We know that a lot of buses may run on natural gas and other things instead of running on the, uh, the fossil fuels. Those are things that are coming. The technology is there. In fact, in some places, that's already happening. Um, we know drones are becoming more and more of a thing. Um, those are just examples. The thing like the fingerprint thing. Um, I just, I'd read that they were looking into ways to scan things like fingerprints on cell phones. So I just, you know, projected what if we had this, all of that kind of stuff um, is, is coming along and law enforcement tends to be ahead of the curve in technology in some ways, as far as developing this stuff. For example, um, I don't remember what it's called. It's called shot, shot collar or something like that. But there is a there's a there's a, a thing that Kansas City PD and, and a lot of departments use that 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 listens all day long all around the city for gunshots, mm. and it, it can identify where it is, what kind of gunshot it was, and whether it's something that requires a response. And it does it in a matter of seconds. Wow. And this is all AI technology, you know, artificial intelligence. Yeah. So that kind of stuff, and it gets better, of course, more refined all the time. That kind of stuff helps them prioritize their calls, helps them, you know respond faster, know what's going on, all these kind of things. So these kind of technologies are already being used by departments. And it's it's funny, you know, I know some people will say, oh yeah, sure, they're ahead of the game in technology, but how come they don't have this? Well, there's budget issues, there's legal issues, you know, the whole the whole body camera thing has been a, a, a debate for the for the police that is now they're kind of being forced to do it, of course, because of George Floyd. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not making a judgment on it. I'm just saying that there are issues with, with, with privacy for officers and privacy for people in the public with the webcams that, that, that the police departments have, have been struggling with. Can we be sued about this, that, all those kind of things that you know, have slowed that down. That's just one example. So there's a lot of things that, that tend to evolve with a lot of issues around them that may take longer, but they really are looking at constantly new technologies, obviously um, you know, improving their their vehicles, their weapons, their other basic equipment, but um, all kinds of different computer stuff as well. Every every car in KCPD, for example, has a laptop in it that is uh, being used to track calls and uh, you know uh, log in and out of calls and and all those kind of things. So I mean, there's all kinds of tech going on. Now you mentioned the AI. You mentioned some some of the body cams and and it conjures up uh, the question of the surveillance state. You know, the idea here, you've got that the that TV show person of interest, for example, where all of the all of the cameras are tied into an AI. And and now we have uh, the Justice Department looking at Google and Facebook and all of the social media stuff that's that's been going on. Uh, Is it. Can we can we project forward and and have stories that don't involve a dystopian surveillance state at this point well i don't think we can i'll be honest with you but that's one of the things where i say you got to be careful what you wish for yeah you know people who want to rush us into these technologies need to remember there are some of the reasons that are that they're slow to put cameras around everywhere are actually good 
because they're actually thinking about the impact it might have on the public in negative ways. Sure. People don't always think, they always think, oh, they're just trying to protect themselves. Well, that's not always true. There are lots of things about invasion of privacy that they know they can be sued for, but also that they know they don't really want to go there. And they're not sure you know, where to draw the line or how to draw the line that they're trying to figure out that, that relate to all those technologies. You know, Person of Interest was a sci-fi show that, that showed an extreme version of it. And probably places like Los Angeles and New York have a far more advanced system than we do here, simply by population base. They don't, they found a necessity of it. Yeah. But the reality of it is, you know, do we really want that in all of our small towns and everywhere? I don't know. I mean, you're going to see a lot more Jeffrey Tubin incidents if you get that kind of thing going on. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I know the guy was on, on Zoom and that was pretty stupid, but I'm just saying you're going to yeah. see a lot more people embarrassed doing stupid things in public on camera. The more cameras we get out there because... Uh, you know, we've all been there. Let's just say. <laughs> well, let me let me switch tacks here for a second because we're talking. We we've been talking a little bit about the the lockdown of the pandemic, and and I'm sure that's going to have an impact in a lot of this as well. But um, the conventions, personal appearances, meeting in person. I mean, the you mentioned Zoom. We're doing a whole lot more of that. Uh, and you've got an anthology that is out as a fundraiser. I want to be sure that we that we look at this. It's called Surviving Tomorrow, and it is an anthology because you're not just a, an author, you're an editor as well, and this is something that you've put together here uh, with a number of stories, and I see some names on here that surprised me, most notably Ann Crispin. And so tell me how this how this book came about. What was the impetus for this? Well, COVID made Anne so mad she came out of the grave and wrote me a story. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm good friends with the estate. I'm good friends with her ex, her, I mean, her widow, her, her widower. Right. Uh, it's not ex-husband. I'm sorry. That, uh, that was insensitive. It would be Michael. I apologize. Um, I, I'm friends with him. And uh, I love Anne's work. And Anne was a mentor to me. And I grew up reading her books. So when I was putting this book together, we were trying to think of who can we get stories from that would kind of give us a, an, a, make people say, oh, I haven't heard from them in a while. And, oh, I really want to see something from them. And so I, I, I reached out to her estate uh, as part of that impetus. You know, we got Neil Gaiman. We got a bunch of people. I started this thing in March. The idea was to raise money to provide uh, medical support for COVID. It evolved into something much bigger and took till this month to ship. We finally got it shipped uh, because of the complexities of doing it. But basically, we're, we're funding COVID test kits. And they go where we distribute them. We're buying them direct for the companies. So we get them at a discount. And we have them shipped directly to certain, certain locations based on who orders the book. So we're shipping them all over the world. And we're shipping them to pre-identified medical places that do testing testing sites and uh you know we funded i don't know a thousand twelve hundred i don't know i don't even know the count anymore i've lost track it was probably a couple thousand at least test kits at this point through this uh to get those faster in people's hands and we we started doing pre-orders on the book a few few months ago so we could start shipping the test kits now because we were like hey you know, it's going to take us a while to get the book done, but we want to get those test kits out as soon as possible. So if you guys can trust us and pre-order, we can start making that happen a lot faster. So we were able to do that. And, and uh, we've got, you know, uh, several, you know, several thousand pre-orders. Um, 
Um, and, uh, and, and I'm more coming as we go wide with the book. So it's really exciting. There's the book is twice as thick as I planned on. It actually got really, really big. It's about 230,000 words. Mm. It's, it's, it's like one of my infinite stars anthologies, you know, it's a thick, thick book, but it basically, um, has a variety of stories, uh, everything from mystery to horror to sci-fi fantasy, of course. And there are stories about survivors. There's very few stories about pandemics because I figured, I, I, don't, I don't know about y'all, but the last thing I want to do is read a whole book about pandemics because right. I'm living a pandemic. There's, there's other kinds of survivors going on from, you know, everything from a, a, a rock slide earthquake to uh, a, an alien attack to zombies to various other things that we cover in the book. Um, and uh, I, it's a whole lot of variety. Um, we had to put it together pretty fast. There's, so there's, there's some new stories. We ended up with about half. Um, and then there's some, some key reprints as well, some of which haven't been seen in a long time, including the story by Anne that you brought up. And what kind of, what kind of feedback have you uh, had for this? I mean, I know you've got, you've got the pre-orders, but have, have you had people saying, oh, this is a great idea, let's do another one? Is, are, is this going to be the first of others or is this a one-time no, one-shot no thing plans at this time to do another one um <laughs> and nobody said we should uh it's a lot of work yeah to put this together it's just as much work as any anthology and nobody's getting paid and the publisher is making you know having to put a lot of money into it in advance and because we're prioritizing the fundraising the recoup on it will be slow process so it's a big investment, but it's something we did because we really believed in, in helping our community. So, I, I mean, I suppose if, if there was really high demand, once the book is really out there wide, we could consider doing another one if there's a need. Sure. Uh, some other cause or, you know, ongoing COVID, God forbid. I really hope we're not, we don't have that problem. No. Um, but uh, no, that's a long answer to say no. <laughs> as far as the feedback we get i mean we've gotten some some decent feedback from people we're just starting to get reviews in um and so far you know things the the feedback on the stories people really like them but there's a lot of variety so you know people have favorites and people as others that, that were you know less less they're less excited about that's typical of any anthology though so I'm looking here at uh, at some of the uh, some of the artists that you have the the writers that you have Claire Ashgrove, Orson Scott Card, uh, Ann Crispin and Kathleen O'Malley, uh, Corey Doctorow, uh, Alan Dean Foster, uh, Neil Gaiman. Uh, there are some names here that I don't recognize, and I will admit that that I I need to cast a wider net in my reading list. But of course, I need to find about another. 16 hours per day to to get it all in i see robert robert silverberg here uh yeah, who's ever heard of that guy i know right well how how hard was it when when you approached these people you said you made a list where there are people that didn't want to I, and i don't want to name names but anybody that didn't want to participate or 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 did everybody just jump on board and say yes well, absolutely nobody said i don't want to participate there were people who didn't have time to write a new story and didn't have a reprint that really fit the theme because okay. it was the theme was stories about survivors yeah so yeah there were a few people that turned me down but they didn't turn me down because they didn't give a crap i don't want to i don't want to oh, sure. in any way cast aspersions on anybody oh yeah they turned me down for for a legitimate reason 
but no, I mean, Silverberg was literally, Silverberg was literally the first person I got. I've been working with Bob on some projects and I reached out to him and he sent me a story like right away. And Guyman was pretty close after that. Um, Guyman lost a friend to COVID. So I reached out to him and he, 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 his people were in touch very quick and we got that going. So, and that really lit a fire on it because, you know, a lot of writers were like, oh my God, you know, I get to be in a book with Guyman and Silverberg. Oh man, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and, and on top of that, uh, I should say, as far as the new names go, if you buy an anthology by me, you're going to see new names in it. I always, always have made a commitment as an anthologist to try to give opportunities to new writers alongside their heroes. Some books, because of various publisher rules or various things, I have less space for them than I do in others. But I always, always want to introduce new writers to people because that is my passion. And that's why I got into editing is to help people. Right. So, um, you're, you know, we got we got lucky with um, this anthology. We were able to include a lot more because of the size of it than I normally would get to include. But, you know, some of the people, if you haven't heard of them, there's several analog regulars in there. So there are people that are known to the analog reading audience. Um, there's a lot of people that have done a lot, a lot of short fiction aren't known for novels. And then there's there's a number of people that, of course, everybody recognizes. Right. Now, as an editor of anthologies, have you seen any kind of a trend as far as what kind of anthologies as far, you know, thematically, any of them that do better than others? Are there certain types of stories that that seem to have a broader appeal in terms of short story collections and other like say here's the zombie anthology here's the space colony type of stories anything like that dude i wish i could predict that because if i did <laughs> i'd have a lot more anthologies out and i'd be a lot more successful and wealthier than i am yeah um no i i i don't have a a finger on in, nobody does i don't have a finger on the pulse of the american buying public and 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 nobody really does nobody really knows anything some people hit hit get lucky and hit a mark and, and they run with it for a while and it's great. Uh, if 10 other people jump on that bag, bandwagon, chances are only two or three of them will have any success. The rest of them will have already missed the mark because people will be moving on to the next trend. That's yeah. just the way publishing works. So I don't, I don't publish to trends. I don't write to trends. I don't, you know, create anthologies to trends. By the time I get it out anyway, this is the fastest I've ever gotten an anthology out. We started it in March and it's out in October. That's incredibly fast. Normally, two years between the time I start working on a book and the time it shows up. So um, normally, you know, by the time the trend, you, you catch up with the trend, the trend's already over. Sure. Now, you talk about turning this thing around fairly quickly. Um, there are a lot of, of projects, anthologies, short story collections, graphic novels, comic books that, do the crowd, that go the crowdfunding route. Have you uh, have you played in that sandbox yet at all, or is that something that yeah, you might I be interested in? The, I did Beyond the Sun and Reagan Chronicles early in my career's crowdfunding. We tried another one, but that one failed, and there were some issues that I dealt with with the money, and I'm still paying some people back. So until I get those people paid back, I haven't done any more Kickstarter anthologies just out of out a sense of honor. Sure. Um, I don't want... Uh, I owe some people, a few people, some money, and I'm going to get them paid back. And I'm slowly doing it as I have money available. Um, and so, yeah, I've tipped my, I've tipped my toe into that. My general feeling about it is, I, I find that some, some people are really good at it and can really make an explosion. 
and the rest of us it's like we're it's it's really stressful and it's like you're on the edge of your seat hoping that you fund yeah and it's it's really time consuming and i've actually been lucky enough to get busier and busier and have a lot of things going on and frankly i don't know if i have the time to do something like that so i'd probably have to hire somebody who knew what they were doing to run it for me and i have to make sure i had a project that was really not only worthy of that but would succeed to the point where i could pay them and still do the project yeah so it's gotten a bit more complicated i mean it's, it's big business now to do the whole kickstarter thing in fact when i did it the, the federal government wasn't involved yet but now that there's all these tax forms and all this other stuff it's gotten a lot more complicated so um i think it's a great way to go um I see people doing it with novels now, which I, I mean, I guess if you can provide people with proof that you're going to pr produce a good product, that's a great way to go too. So um, that was always my question is how do we know if you're an unproven novelist that we're going to get a novel that's worthy of, of, of committing the kind of money you're asking for and you have to ask for, for a Kickstarter. Right. Um, so there are always those kind of questions. So you really have to be kind of selective. So it's a great way to do it though. And have you uh, had conversations with anybody about doing any kind of a graphic novel or a comic book or anything? I mean, you've you've been uh, on both sides as both a writer and an editor. Has that ever crossed your path as a as a possible storytelling venue? Oh, it's it's I've I've had some interest in it. I'll be honest with you, I didn't grow up reading comic books. And I have only read a few in my life. I mean, compared to most people who read comic books, I've read I probably read a hundred comic books in my life. I'm 52. So I'm, I'm not a big connoisseur of comic books. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with comic books, but I'm just not as familiar with that medium. Um, and I don't have a huge driving passion for it. So right. I would do one if somebody gave me the opportunity. I do have a passion for screenwriting and I have been involved in that, but and there's similarities between that and graphic novels. But uh, in fact, Simon Says the book was a screenplay that I wrote in the 90s that I adapted into a novel and, and, and modernized. So um, it, it's, not, it, it's not an area that I'm, I'm actively pursuing, but we, uh, there, discussions always come up from time to time. Yeah. Now, uh, the success of The Martian. I, I've seen a couple of interviews you know, talking about your involvement. Did you know, and, and then it got made into a movie. Did the success of that book surprise you at all? The fact Boy, that's a loaded question. The fact man. that Talking it about trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> well, no, I mean, Andy's a nice, Andy, 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 a really nice guy. He won't care that I say this. Am I surprised a little bit when I read it? I thought it was a pretty good first novel, but I didn't think it was anything particularly necessarily extraordinary, but I thought it was good. And he really captured the whole thriller feel really well. Yeah. There were a number of things that I thought could use improvement and some of them he didn't want to do. Uh, and when he sold it to Crown, that editor made him do those things. So that was my redemption. But uh, I was the first editor that worked with him on it. I worked on, on it in like 2013. He, he was recommended to me by an old friend of his named Jennifer Brozak, who's a fellow editor that I've done some stuff with. And um, I worked with Andy on that book, and we got it to the point where he felt like he could actually monetize it and you know put it up for sale. And then it ended up selling, and he got you know a huge advance, and the rest is history. Uh, and we've keep it, we keep in touch. I've actually done some uh, San Diego Comic Con stuff with Andy, and seen him around there. Um, but 
uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was a little surprised it was such a phenomenon, but so was so was Andy, to be honest with you. I mean, nobody, nobody, you never know. Yeah. It's one of those things. Certain books get earmarked by publishers as the books they're going to put all their money behind and muscle, and they know they can make them a bestseller, and they and they do. But to to reach the level of the international phenomenon that he did, that's just like a once in a lifetime thing. And that's totally unpredictable, and and it has nothing to do with the publishers deciding this is the one that we're going to take all the way to the top. Well, no, I, as I just said, it has something to do with that. Yeah. I mean, if the publisher decides that you're going to be their fall book, and if they pay you, you know, a six-figure advance, which he got, you can guarantee you they're going to put their best PR money and muscle into that, and they're going to try to get you interviews on the Today Show and various things, and and do things that'll get that book out there so you get a lot more sales than the average person because they want to make their money back. Publishing, sure. after all, publish, publishers are in business. They want to make money. Yeah. So that's why, you know, usually the better advance you get, the more likely your publisher is to put money behind it. I, I get five-figure advances from my anthologies now. And as a result, you know, the last several anthologies I've had have all hit the national bestseller level and sold over 10, 15,000 copies. Monster Hunter Files, I think, has done two or three times that because we've earned back our budget by four or five times now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the publisher putting money behind it. In, in the case of Monster Hunter Files, it's also the fact that Larry, I mean, love him or hate him, Larry has a huge, very supportive fan base. It's very active and they, they will buy the heck out of his books and they talk about it to their friends and they do all that stuff. He's very lucky, but he's cultivated that over many, many years. Sure. So... Um, you know, I think, I think there's, there's, there's a good marketing and good publisher support is a, is a big part of that. But also if you have a, if you know who your fan base are and you're very well connected with them and they're very active, that makes a huge difference too. So that's one of the advantages of, 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 of authors building a platform over time. And Larry started building his platform as an indie author. He self-published probably did that for a decade. I don't even remember how long now at this point before he ever got to the level of success he's at now. So he put in the time. And so it's one of the things that everybody asks me, how do you get started? When do I start marketing? I start marketing right now, then write your book. And then when your book's done, you'll have something to build on. Right. If you wait till your book comes out, you're really starting behind the game. You know, uh, it's, it's true now. It's, it was true then. In fact, one of the things that older writers like Silverberg and I have talked about that they struggle with. Silverberg doesn't do social media. He doesn't want to do all that marketing stuff. That's not his job. Unfortunately, in the modern age, it is the author's job. Yeah. So guys that are old school like that can get left behind sometimes. Not that he is. And I'm, I'm you know, sometimes their reputations are big enough that they survive because people will put money behind their books, which is what happens with Bob. But I'm just saying that if you're unwilling to do that and you're a, you're a mid-lister, you, you might have some problems down the road because so much of your book success now depends on you that everybody used to think that depended on the publisher. Yeah. Well, and that goes back to a conversation that I had with Ann Crispin when her Pirates of the Caribbean book came out. Uh, the ah. fact that the load, uh, you know, the, the majority of the marketing responsibility has shifted. Used to be you, your publishers would do a whole lot more of the heavy lifting, and now it's the authors that have a lot to do with that. And it's almost like you have to have this perfect storm, because I've seen 
you know, you go back to the crowdfunding with the graphic novels and stuff. A lot of these guys have their own YouTube channels. They're building a following. They're, you know, they're they're creating an audience. And then they say, oh, by the way, I've got this I've got this comic book coming out. And and on the novel side of things, you know, like you said, Larry's got this big following. It's almost like you have to be able to wear several hats at once. A social media manager, you know, marketing publicity, editorial, as well as just writing the story. And it, you, you do. You, you either do or you have to have the money in place to go ahead and hire other people who can do that for you. And that's usually not something most authors can do. Yeah. At least starting out. Um, it's it, it is it's just the nature of the beast. And in in the various different writing workshops, uh, you've got one. Cat Rambo's got one. You've got a number of different ones out there. Are there is there a a, a lack should there be more that focus on that side of things, the marketing and promotion aspects of things? Is that is that kind of falling by the wayside, or do we need to play catch up on teaching, especially new authors, but older authors as well? Like you mentioned, Bob Silverberg doesn't doesn't do social media. How do you how do you get people used to that idea? No matter where they are in their career, whether they're starting out or established. I think here's. Here, well, this is going to be a controversial response, but I think social media has actually been a as much of a bad effect on publicity as it has positive. The reality of it is um, social media is great for PR, but you have to learn to set limits on what you're willing to talk about. I don't engage politically hardly ever anymore. Yeah, It's not worth it. It just pisses people off. And frankly... I don't have the fan base I can afford to piss off. So I don't want to get involved in, yeah, some of you won't agree with my politics. I'm actually pretty complex. I'm very middle of the road. I'm, I'm registered independent. Some of you aren't, I got people on both sides that don't agree with me, but there's, I prefer to focus on the things we have in common. We love, you know, action movies or we love uh, romantic comedies or we love sci-fi or we love whatever. There's so much more, that you and I, I mean, Jason, you and I could put our heads together. I'm, I'm sure we'd find a lot of things we disagree about. But I'll bet you if we really looked at it, we'd find more we have in common. I'm sure. We could focus on that. And yeah. I think people spend way too much time bashing things, bashing each other with a negative focus on social media because of the nature of it, because that's kind of where it's gone. And that's a bad thing. I think you lose more. I don't spend near as much time on Twitter as I used to. I was one of the early people on Twitter hanging out, building a community. And then Twitter got nasty. And I just don't spend my time on Twitter anymore. And I limit my my Facebook, uh, who I friend and so on, and who I follow, just because I found that those things, not only were they a time suck that took me away from things that were more important than I needed to be doing, yeah. but they simply were not worth it. They just created a negative energy that, that made it hard for me to focus on things and, and, and made me depressed, fed my depression. And... Um, they didn't do anything to boost sales most of the time. Um, and so I kind of had to, um, I kind of had to decide to find the right balance. Also, it's very, you have to realize all this stuff is public, no matter how private you think it is. Sure. Because Facebook saves your private messages and say, Twitter saves your private messages. All that stuff could eventually come out if the government subpoenaed it. It could also come out just because somebody hacks in and there's a leak. And it never goes away. Um, there's tweets I deleted 
that um, I wish I hadn't said that were things that got misinterpreted that come back and people post, you know, screenshots of them. And I'm like, I erased that tweet a long time ago. You know, why am I still dealing with this seven years later? I, that's not what I meant. I said, then it's not what I meant. I took it down because people were confusing my meaning. Why am I still being hassled over this? That is a liability. And I think if you, so teaching people not only how to, how to market, but teaching people how to use better judgment. I actually think this is true. And this is really, it's really kind of disgusts me and it, it makes me sad. There's a lot of opportunism now in promotion. People trying to create controversy just to get PR for themselves has become a thing. And they're trying to create a kerfluffle so they can paint themselves as the hero of it and sell their books. Yeah. And I just think that's just, if you have to climb over somebody else's back and tear somebody down to succeed, then it's not worth it. And frankly, it's... It's not, I don't support those people. I, I, I just, on principle, I just think it's, it's not, not the right way to go about it. Son. So I, you know, you know, to answer your question, yes, we need to train people more, but it's not just in how to do it. It's the ethos of it. Yeah. Well, and Sci-Fi Snob in the chat says that it's not a controversial opinion, and and I would agree with. It. I think there were a lot of there are probably a lot more people who agree with your take on it. Uh, than than you might expect because especially now with the discussion online now about this transparency tube site that is blowing up and everybody is talking about it over the last couple of days. I mean, labeling YouTube channels based on the activity of their followers just seems to me rife for you know it's it's something that can be weaponized and stuff. And I'm like, why would you do something like that? But yeah, the, well, there's the, so many trolls. How is yeah, that reasonable? Exactly. There's so many people. I can't control. You know, that's why I shut off comments on my blog because I get so many trolls and I couldn't control. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I, I don't have time to go and, and and police comments all day long. So I don't want to give these people a platform to say their hateful things. Yeah. So I now modify. I moderate every single comment on my blog. I hate having to do that. And sometimes I'm I'm days or weeks behind getting comments posted, which kind of sucks. But <laughs> it's better than having people, you know, slander you on your own blog and, yeah. and put up all kinds of crazy stuff or put up racist content. I've had people make all kinds of comments that I was like, why are you putting that on here? I don't want that on. I'm not going to support that. You know, I, it's just, yeah. And so if I'm going to be, if I was going to be all the more reason, if I was going to be judged by that, I would definitely want to moderate comments because that's, that's not that's not my fault. All kinds of people get it, you know. People attract all kinds of of people, and people are emboldened by social media in ways that, frankly, they shouldn't be to say things that they would never say. You were talking earlier about you know the difference between in your face at cons and on social media. Yeah, the fact is, there's a lot of people that wouldn't have the guts to come up and say to me the things in person at a con that they would say about me online. Right, and there's a lot of people that wouldn't get the chance because I simply avoid them too. I mean, I, honestly, um, I don't do as many cons as I used to because um, it's not worth it. You know, there are people that will try to bait you and uh, I don't have time for it. I mean, if you don't want to read my work, don't read my work, but you know, don't, don't, don't take my words and, and put some alternative meaning on it and then tell me that's what I meant. Yeah. Because you know, if you want to know what I meant, ask me. I'll tell you what I meant, and um, that's the only accurate determination of what I'm trying to say. And uh, 
that's not the way the world works anymore. Well, I don't have time for that. That's a time waster. Yeah. So uh, in this in this day and age, you mentioned conventions, you mentioned meeting people face to face. What kind of impact do you think we're going to have to be dealing with with conventions once they hopefully come back? What kind of changes do you anticipate we're going to have to be making in in that in that scene? Well, I'm an optimist. They will come back. Do I think they're going to change some things? I think they might. It depends on what happens with the whole COVID and pandemic thing. Mm -hmm. There might have to be some some downsizing. There might have to be some limiting of crowds and how they use space. There might have to be some changes um, in other things as well. You might have people who are afraid to go to cons. Uh, There are authors that I know and others that I know that have immune deficiencies that might be more and more likely to say, I just can't go to a space like that and take the chance because it could kill me. Right. And um, it's, it's now more of a risk. I mean, things like San Diego Comic Con, which is not the typical con, right. but Dragon Con and San Diego in particular are good examples because people from all over the world come. That's where you get the most possibility for exposure anywhere you go. And we're talking about, you know, 150, 200,000 people in a very, you know, in a couple mile space. That's a lot. Three, four days in a row. Yeah. That's, it's intense. It's, it's very intense. I've never, Comic Con is an experience all of its own. It's unlike any other con I ever go to just because of the intensity of literally weeding through a sea of people on a regular basis. <laughs> it takes a long time to get anywhere because you're literally, you, nobody has six feet space. Yeah. I mean, if you ever have six feet space, you're very, I mean, that's a rare moment. Most of the time, you've got somebody right behind you and somebody right in front of you and somebody on either side yeah. all the time wherever you're going the most space i get is when i'm on a panel and i'm sitting up on the podium you know (laughs) (laughs) then i'm at a table at least those people are you know a couple chairs away or whatever do you see a Uh, lot of these events uh developing an online virtual track of some sort where you know because we've we've started to see because there are a lot of them that have gone virtual this year they're doing a lot of online stuff with zoom and discord and and youtube and facebook and, and a lot of live video with the panels and and Q and A's and that kind of thing. Do you think that's going to become a normal piece of conventions going forward? Maybe. I think so, and I think it's not a bad thing. I I I did a panel for Comic Con Home that that did quite well. Um, I think once we learn the technology and get the technology up and running, I think uh, you're going to see a lot more of that, and it's going to be more and more common. And um, I definitely think there are advantages of it. Uh, I think, you know, hey, being able to attend a con that you could never afford to attend that's over in Australia or London or somewhere and be part of that. How cool is that? Yeah. I mean, that that's a cool that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And I think cons can monetize that. They could charge a moder- hopefully modest fee <laughs> and you can get it be a part of the feed and, and attend various panels. And I think it actually could be, you know, sell an online membership. 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something, and you can get certain feed. I think it could actually help support cons and keep them alive longer. Um, so I think people are seeing the advantages of it. And, and I think there really are some. Uh, oh, sorry, my cat just knocked down the, <laughs> the camera. Right. I, I knew that was going to happen at some point during this, this Zoom. This is one of the uh, technical problems we have with zoom on occasion 
was my yeah. cat jumping down on on top of the camera. Zoom, zoom right. and cats just generally don't mix. Uh, I, yes. I have found. Thank you, Dosi, for your cameo. <laughs> if, if you if you caught a glimpse of my cat's butt, I want to apologize to everybody. Else no, you're that. fine. You're fine. Okay. Well, speaking of modest fees, what are you working on right now? How how can people find uh, your current work, your upcoming work? What's the best place? Well. To, I took to get a break during on. COVID, but I'm just starting to blog again. So BrianThomasFit.net. I blog every Monday and every Wednesday. I also have um, pages up for all of my books. There's buy links for Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Indie Bound and other. If there's other options, those are up there too. Okay. I also have a lot of um, uh, videos on YouTube that you'll see uh, from Comic Cons and various things that are up there. A lot of them are are, are linked. Um, and, uh, you know, of course there's the, as you mentioned, the, uh, the novel writers bootcamp that you can take to get a hand of things. Um, I'm working on a, a book that has been, uh, optioned for film called shortcut. And that is basically, it's kind of like the Martian. It's about a mathematician who has invented a faster way of space travel, whose wife gets kidnapped by unknown forces and he has to go out and find her and ends up to having to, uh, accelerate his his development and go out in space and, and bring her back um and that is something that should be out in the spring summer at the latest we're kind of in the process of figuring when out when it's going to come out it's been delayed by covid it was supposed to be a fall book um and with that one is it with it involving space travel how much research and and i'm assuming that you've been tracking all of the SpaceX stuff and, and what's been going on with, with Project Artemis and, and looking yeah, at I that? Yeah, I updated. I actually updated the book to include some of that stuff because it, you know, I finished it over a year ago and, and, and with all the delays, you know, I was like, well, there's a few things we can mention that, that will be, should be current pop culture references talking about this thing because there's, there's a lot of things happening. Yeah. The truth is, I, um, I had a personal Sheldon named Jonathan he is a scientist, and he worked with me on all the science of the book and all the math, and all of it is accurate. As much as we could make it, we had to extrapolate some things because we were making up some technology. But anything that could be scientifically accurate is scientifically accurate. There's a few things where we stretch the bounds uh, for storytelling purposes, but they're all, they're all supposedly things that, that might be possible. Um, the math is, is, is definitely real math, uh, but we might have it used as a proof of something that is extrapolated that isn't quite possible yet. So I did a lot of research. I've never worked longer, harder, or done more research on any book that I've done other than Shortcut. It is hard sci-fi thriller. So it's very, if you're a fan of The Martian you'll like, and you like the kind of books that have that real science in it, you should like this book a lot. Now you say you did a lot of research. Was it was it hard to find the sources for the research and some of this stuff, or is is it a lot that's all out there for anybody to find? If you guys want to be up on the latest science, you need to subscribe to New Scientist. It is the magazine that all the scientists and all the hard sci-fi people subscribe to. It's it costs about a hundred dollars for a year subscription. It's like time. It comes out every week and newscientist.com. You can also subscribe a little cheaper online and they have an app for your phone. But that is the other, the the other one is science news daily, which um, I don't remember what it costs, but I think it's slightly cheaper, but they're both 
science magazines that focus on nothing but the latest science that come out on a weekly basis and give you all kinds of information. That was the way that I found most of what I found. They often do book reviews. They often refer you to sources that you can lead to. There's links to papers. There's links to all kinds of things. So, you know, but truthfully, Jonathan was my guy. I said, here's the scientific problem. I need the science for this. He would go off and he literally wrote me scientific papers on every single thing. If the movie ever gets made, we're going to do the science of shortcut book with all of the diagrams and all the stuff he did because he literally wrote me. It was the coolest thing ever, man. As an author, you're getting all this science presented to you that backs up your story. And, and so um, he did a lot of that work. I mean, I, it's not that I didn't do some myself because when I could, I did. Sure. But um, he was a friend of a friend who came on and volunteered to do it. He just wanted credit in the book and he likes storytelling. He wanted to learn from me. And, uh, and we've worked on a couple of things since then because we enjoy working together. So uh, it, was a, it was a real blessing. And um, he was the guy. And he could point me to stuff to read. He always sent me articles and said, hey, you want to read this? Plus, I kept up on, a, on the latest news and, and all that, not just with, you know, with um, obviously new scientists but, and science news daily, but also, you know, just I, I have customized my feed to send me those things so I know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the people in Hollywood I was working with were also sending me stuff. So um, it wasn't as hard as you might think to find the stuff. But, um, you know, when you're working with technology, you always know you're behind the curve. You always know that there's going to be something new coming along that's going to, that could potentially knock you completely out of the water sure. next week. So, like finding water on the moon. <laughs> yeah, like finding water. Yeah. <laughs> you you kind of have to trust that, that people will um, give you the benefit of the doubt and understand that. Yeah. All right, the website, BrianThomasSchmidt.net, and he is also on YouTube and Twitter, and uh, the Novel Writing Bootcamp over at Inkit. And we are and looking for... you can find for... me on Facebook as Brian Thomas S, B-R-Y-A-N-T-H-O-M-A-S-S. That is also my handle on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram as Brian Thomas Schmidt. Okay. All right, well, we will put links to that in uh, the show notes. Brian, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. We do appreciate it. And and all of you in the chat and uh, those who are leaving comments and... Uh, and... I chat, people. Thank you for coming. <laughs> all right. So that's going to do it for us today. We do appreciate you being here. And, uh, of course, if you have feedback that you'd like to share with us, uh, you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. You can always leave a comment or uh, throw something our way in social media. We do have a number of the accounts over there. You can just find us using Sci-Fi for Me. And don't forget, we will have a brand new Salacious Crumbs tonight with the latest news in the Star Wars universe. And uh, uh, we will be talking about that on the Ranker Pit on Friday. And we will be back with more Live from the Bunker Tomorrow, 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 Central. Uh, Back with more. Thanks for watching, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.